1: Welcome to Undermine. Here we are. Somehow, we are at episode 15. I'm Tom Marshall. Welcome back. And we've landed in December 95, another beloved month in fish history. I could use some chocolate. But first, my co-host for today is Osiris co-founder and HF Pod host, RJB. Hi, RJ.
0: Hello, Tom. Um, how are you? <laughs> Stunning. Stunning.
1: Yeah. Here we look at are, my new shirt. Look at my new shirt.
0: That is a nice shirt.
1: Where is that new? Uh it's pretty new. And I'm going out with uh two couples afterwards. So I have to dress up a little bit more than I normally do.
0: Or is it just you and the two couples or is your wife going to? Um that's up in the air, believe it or not. <laughs> so today, also in a previous episode, Tom, and I know I know this about you, that your your dressing up is Putting a shirt on over a t shirt, and you did that today. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Um, all right. So, today we're going to the land of chocolate, Hershey, PA, to talk about 12195. So, according to fish.net, this is one of the top three shows of 1995 with good reason. We're also going to talk about the other two, just so you know. So, this is the absolute peak of fish to date, I think. They're, the sound is filling these larger venues. The playing is precise but but also exploratory. The improvisation is great. And so we're gonna we're gonna bring a guest on who you can already see. So it's not really a surprise. But before Tom tells us about Benji, which he's gonna do, <laughs> I should say if you've been liking Undermine, please consider subscribing to Osiris Premium on Apple, where you get ad free podcasts, bonus episodes and other stuff. Okay, Tom, over to you
1: so it's definitely not a surprise you you showed him and you outed him for our audio crew um but uh we're proud to have benji here but before i officially bring him on as our guest he's staying very uh you know polite and not saying a thing because he's not been officially uh invited on yet um i do have a shout out to i want to say that since this show is about hershey pa and since our guest and i have a good friend currently in hershey and actually pretty high up in the Hershey Chocolate Corporation. Thanks for listening, Katrina Bridell. And thank you for all the gift packs, including this last one that got me through foot surgery. Um, I lied, I have another shout out. Um, Our friend of the pod, Carla No, who appeared as a guest in previous seasons of Undermine and who financed some of her 1.0 fish adventures in part with summer jobs at Hershey Park. And I believe both of them were at this show as was today's guest, Benji Eisen. If you've been watching or listening to this season of Undermine, then you're already familiar with him. He has been behind the scenes in the Undermine world since season two, actually. But this season, of course, he's often my co-host. And today, he's reprising his appearance as guest because he has a special connection with this December 95 Hershey show. Welcome back, Benji Eisen.
2: Thanks, Tom. Good to be be here.
1: Glad to have you here. And uh, before we get actually into the meat of the show or uh, into the chocolate, I guess we should say, uh, you're excited to talk about this show, not only because of the show itself, but because of the location and why Why actually is that?
2: Uh, yes, the, uh, the mystical land of chocolate. Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot to be excited about, but I do have a special connection here. Just like I do, uh, or just like with today's shout outs, I have this, you know, hometown connection to the show. I grew up in Harrisburg, which is about 20 minutes from the venue. So Hershey Park, to me, was my first taste of freedom. It was the first place where my parents would drop my friends and I off, where we were allowed to go wander around the amusement park by ourselves, unsupervised. It's where I had, I think, my first cigarette, my first dates, you know, it represented uh, a coming of age, which I'm not sure I'm done with that phase yet. But, uh, but Hershey Park, you know, it remains to me this eternal symbol of my youth. And it's, it's where I saw my first concerts there. I saw Bon Jovi at the stadium. And then I saw Aerosmith in that arena with my mom chaperoning me white as a ghost. You know, I saw um, a ton of heavy metal shows there as a teenager. And for this show that we're talking about for Fish. You know, I was in college in Massachusetts at this point. I drove home for the show. It was the show was on a Friday night. So uh, I guess you could say I was driving home to mom and dad for a weekend with no cares, but uh, <laughs> also with a few friends of mine in tow, you know, and I was two years into my fish fandom. So fish was kind of like the secret society that I was suddenly a part of, you know, not to mention my shape shifting identity as a college student. So I think those two things kind of met at this crossroads where it was this place that represented my youth before then. And then something new, some new chapter. It was like fish was uh, this new sacred thing happening, but in my original sacred place. Um, Also I used to watch all these AHL games there, by the way, there this team called the Hershey Bears would play. So my friends and I, this is true. My friends and I, would go do uh, public ice skating. So we would ice skate uh, there. And then when they would change it over for the hockey team, we would go hide in the bathroom so that we would get free tickets to the hockey game. And uh, years later, uh, the arena's general manager told me that they knew that that stuff happened and the kids did that all the time. It was, it was like a tradition. So the arena literally turned a blind eye to it because they felt like it was a rite of passage that they wanted to support. Kids sneaking in the hockey games, my
1: kids are beyond being dropped off places unsupervised uh but r j as a parent of young kids, the only thing he heard in that whole intro of yours, Benji, was what happens when you drop kids off unsupervised yeah, and now he'll he will never do that now.
0: I'm not doing it at Hershey Park, that's for sure
2: <laughs> you, you smoked cigarettes and you and you you uh you, you, kiss, you girls. kiss girls girls yeah. Wow. Totally.
0: I was never a teenager. I went straight from being a little kid to being an adult. So I don't know. i, I missed that phase. So Benji, the, this was their only show at Hershey Park Arena. Um, and Fish was supposed to play at the Giant Center in Hershey in 2020, but this this venue, you said you've seen other shows there. So but Fish only ended up playing there once. What was it? What was the venue like and what happened to it?
2: Well, uh the Giant Center, by the way, is the is the new arena. Um by new I mean uh at this point, I think it's 20 years old, <laughs> but um it's across the street. So Hershey Park Arena itself, which is still there and still hosts uh, I believe college sports. Um it's a mid-century arena. It's one of those classic old smelly hockey arenas. And adjacent to it is the Hershey Museum. And adjacent to that is the amusement park you know, that I just talked about where I spent all my summers. And adjacent to that is Chocolate World, which is where they show you how to make chocolate. Hershey doesn't really allow anyone into the actual chocolate factory because the secrets are too secret and there's, there's corporate spying and there's espionage, most famously Mars. There, there's actually some truth to Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, not the golden ticket part, but the fortified factory where nobody is allowed in because of the sludworths of the world. They wanna steal all the recipes and trade secrets. That's actually kind of true. So they built this ride to show visitors how chocolate's made. And then of course, uh, you exit to the gift shop where you can buy buy the chocolate. I'm pretty sure that lots of fish kids that day went on the ride. It was open, it's free, because you end up paying it at the end when you you know buy all the chocolate and Reese's Pieces pillows and Kit Kat trapper keepers and Almond Joy Monopoly boards, you know, whatever. Um, But the setting, therefore, RJ, uh, the setting around the arena had this, you know, magical, whimsical, innocent, and yet somehow psychedelic vibe for me. Uh, It was all overlaid on top of, you know, a plethora of childhood memories. But the arena, it's this charming old uh, classic, smelly hockey arena.
1: I don't think I've missed many, if any, uh, Hershey's shows. but maybe you can bring us back to this, uh, the scene, uh, Benji. So fall of 95 fish scene is totally exploding a month after this show, the band would play their first YMSG new year's. Um, and it was also their first two night stand at MSG. Um, Hershey is lo- is located, you know, just a couple hours from New York and a couple hours from Philly, uh, where the band had already moved up to the spectrum. Uh, what do you remember about the scene?
2: Well, Tom, I'll tell you, the scene was, uh, like you just said, it was growing rapidly. Uh, during the summer times, they were playing sheds, like Great Woods and, you know, the Man Music Center. So Shakedown was already a thing at that point. But, you know, fall and spring shows were always a little bit smaller because at that point, I think their entire audience was still in college. Uh, you know, I know that I was studying for finals during the summer 95, and in some cases, I would take a final and leave and go to a show, take a final, leave and go to Binghamton and drive home, you know, but uh, I must mention that there is something unusual about uh, the scene at Hershey that, that still exists when they play there. And that's that as I was getting at before, the parking lot is shared with the amusement park because it's all on the same campus. So of course, since this was December, Hershey Park itself was closed. However, they had a very accidentally, unintentionally psychedelic feature and that they had this attraction called Christmas Candyland, uh, which is out on Candy Lane. And so what Christmas Candyland is, I mean, you can imagine it. It was, you know, giant candy canes that were lit up with string lights, gift shops from the North Pole, Santa Claus photo ops. You know, you had families taking their little ones for a hot cocoa while shopping for ornaments. And in the same parking lot, You have kids selling Sammy Smith's one for three, two for five. So, you know, it was a scene, right? Of course, the the Hershey authorities absolutely did their best to shut down all the visible elements. But to those who knew what to look for, there was a a dissonance. And, you know, when you looked and you you took it all in. Perfect. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that was pretty unusual and and also humorous. (laughs) Nice.
0: So, Benji, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think back, back on this show?
2: Well, RJ, you know I'd love to get into the music, but first I have to tell you I have a I have a strong memory of this night, which uh, of the whole night at all, which also shows you how unusual because it was such a penultimate night that I can still recall all the parts of it, the music, everything, where my seats were. But uh, the first first thing that comes to my mind is an embarrassing moment that I'm about to reveal, especially considering the fact that, wait a minute, you know, I was I, I feel like I was vulnerable in the last guest appearance here when I sacrificed my pride for humor to talk about my New Year's Eve trip involving being underwater where they turned the arena into an aquarium.
1: People like that.
2: Well, maybe people like this one. I don't know about this one, though. Uh, it, it, it's uh, a more cautionary tale on this night, and it wasn't, didn't involve me, but it did involve my friend Brent. This was his turn. He was uh, staying with me at my parents' house, sleeping on the couch, you know, drove with me back from, from college uh, for the weekend. And afterwards, we were waiting for him to come back. I was with a few of my friends. We had a designated driver. My friend who didn't come back wasn't him, and I was not it either. Um, And, you know, we were looking everywhere for him. And the cops at that point were very deliberately trying to rush people out of the parking lot. And they were very intolerant of everything, you know, vending, all of that. They just wanted to get everybody out. They wanted to go home, you know. So I kept on telling them, look, we're waiting for our friend. It's his car. We're really sorry, but we can't go until we find him. You can help us find him, you know. And I remember asking the police if there were any injuries or if anybody was taken away, And eventually, after asking all the cops this two or three times, one of them did say that there was a person that they had to take to the hospital because he was so out of his mind, he didn't even know his own name. And at that point, I instantly knew that it was my friend. So so we called all the hospitals, and then we finally located, not my friend's name, we located the John Doe. Because he could not say his own name at that point. So we located the John Doe who came in from the fish show, they had to sedate him and basically restrain him until the acid wore off, and at that point, you know, no harm done, other than the fact that it, uh, I, I'm sure he had a hospital bill or something. And of course, his tail between his legs, drove home uh, mortified. Uh, and he, you know, I don't think we really talked about what happened, but he did say though that it all started to unravel for him during the narration, <laughs> during the Colonel Forbin's narration, because he was convinced that fish was trying to lead some religious ceremony and it, it culminated in that David Bowie with the catapult. Uh, I think you just put him over the edge.
0: That covered all of these uh, different fields. It was basically a quest for the knowledge of the way things work in general. And what happened was at some point in time, science and religion split off into two different, two different uh, paths of thought. Okay, so you got your human beings on the planet. And what happened is you ended up with a Western style of thought An Eastern style of thought, okay? Now in the Eastern style of thought, everything is one and everything kind of blends together into one whole,
1: holistic, organic view. In the Western style of thought, you've got matter and you've got spirit, two different kinds of things, which is gave rise to modern concepts of religion and all that stuff. Trey would be proud to hear that, uh, you know, that that actually, because I think he is speaking to the trippers out there. So this (laughs) had the desired effect. So...
0: (laughs) So he made it through the whole show, though.
2: Uh, he made it through the David Bowie, so yeah. yeah. Da- I mean,
0: that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's further than I've made it at times. Um, <laughs> so I guess, for speaking of, all right, we got to get to the music. But do we need to hear from our chocolate sponsors before we before we move into the music?
1: Let's do. Let's do a quick break. And that break was extremely quick, didn't you guys think so? We are back from break. Um, So let's talk about the show itself. It's the first day of what many consider the best month of Fish 1.0, or at least one of them. I think the fall 97 tour that we're working up to is probably its stiffest competition. So where, Benji, do you place this show in the hierarchy of just December 95?
2: Well, before we talk about where this fits in in the month that follows, let's for a second look at it through the lens of Fish 1.0 overall, because it has all of the elements that I want out of a great fish show. Um, and by that, I mean, like it combined, it had a flow, it had a ferocious attack, but there was an element of, of show business, you know, sometimes a uh, show biz, you know, like the, the sparkly jazz hands uh, style. It was sometimes referential, sometimes satirical, always with like a wink, wink, like there's an inside joke. And you didn't quite need to know the punchline in order to appreciate the humor. Um, but on this night, they even lifted the veil and they went meta with a kind of joke on the audience that we'll get to. I'm talking about, of course, the Ternal forbins, But back to the ingredients. So you have a 20-plus minute jam, which here was Mike's song. You have plenty of other extended improvisational moments, the Wikipod that followed, the glorious David Bowie we just talked about. You have this tongue-in-cheek showbiz of... Jonathan Fishman, who dressed up as Elvis Presley for *Suspicious Minds*, um, you have with lights, his, with lights, yeah, yeah. He uh, had an
1: amazing outfit that night. He
2: he did. Uh, he had he had was the uh, the Elvis cape uh, fishified, yeah. and then you have setless gems that you have buried alive, catapult, Haley's Comet, the game engine narration we keep talking about. So to me. That's, you know, everything that I love about this band all at once. And lots of bands have one of those elements. But Fish was, uh, and maybe still is, the only band that can really master and include them all. And as far as the setlist construction goes, you know, here they navigate from breakneck bluegrass, which was Poor Heart, right in the font, which was Wolfman's brother. There's heavy metal, there's prog rock, there's jazz, all of which were present and accounted for at various moments throughout the show. And now, you know, look, guys, Tom, RJ, I know that December 31st, 1995 is the Holy Grail for many people. And then you have Binghamton from the middle of the month, which often takes the silver. And I was at both of those too. But to me, when I go back to December 95, I, I, usually, I, I usually, I think I reach for this show or else... uh even though we won't get into it, I reach for twelve five ninety five, which is UMass Amherst. If anybody, by the way, wants to do some bonus homework, listen to December 5th, 1995 set two. And I guarantee you that you'll be handsomely rewarded for your time and effort. You know, (laughs) I love how all the great months of fish stand apart from each other. They have different fingerprints. And as we mentioned, Hershey is the great first set of this particular month, uh, it's like, you know, they put all 10 feet of their best feet forward. Um, first comers have their mouth on the floor. You know, and at this point, you realize the depth of this band. The, there are no show ponies, but uh, they're, you know, they're no one trick ponies either. This was like the peak of their flawless phase. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, and I think just to add to what you said about the the, the next night after this has one of the best tweezers like on twelve two ninety five, 95. I mean, there, there's something every night and that's what makes this month so special. I, to me, this like fall 95 sound is what fish sounds like. And I think that's that partially because that's when it all kind of came together for me. I saw my first show about a month before this. Um, but, You know, like I said at the beginning, they're like, they're filling out the sound in these bigger arenas. In 93 and 94, you can hear them working their way toward, toward this point in terms of improv. But now they've sort of arrived and they, I mean, the Down with Disease, the theme, the Wolfmans, all in the first set are all so... It's just like, it's very nostalgic to me. It feels like this is what fish sounds like. I mean, it's like big, it's big, but it's, but it's contained. It's very focused, but also not too, not taking itself too seriously in terms of the, the, like the, the balance between the improv and the composed parts. And, you know, it's just, this is just such a great, great place to go back to. Um, but Benji, we've been talking about these big shows and, and often they have these big jams, right. You know, as the centerpiece and this Mike's jam is, is that's it for this, this show. I listened to it a couple of times cause it's, it's so great to listen to. It's multifaceted. There's so much happening here, but what, what are your thoughts about this, this Mike's jam?
2: Well, uh, I agree with you. I listened to it a couple of times this week as well because um, there's just so much there that's so cool. This might doesn't have, it does reach that mythical 20 minute mark, but um, this was way before we thought like that. But uh, this doesn't have the crazy side tangents or left turns or unexpected medleys ripping through it like it does on some of the ones that we just talked about recently here from 93. Instead though, excuse me, Trey kind of takes the lead and he keeps it throughout, which is indicative of the band throughout this era. He just goes balls to the wall rocking with it. And for every new idea that he has, the band is with him instantly to the point that it kind of sounds like a, a tapestry that you almost think that there was a roadmap. Of course, there was no roadmap. And then they slam <clears throat> straight into that powerful Wikipod groove, you know, without anything in between, which means I need to point something out here with, with very, very few exceptions. Once they started pairing mites with hydrogen and then with Wikipod from the late 80s until about 1993, every single time it was played, it went into hydrogen pretty much. They had to establish that, you know, expectation. And that way, when they broke from it later on, it kind of meant something. But before hydrogen, this is interesting. Mites went into Dave's Energy Guide when they first played it, and I think a couple times into the A train. But then, as soon as they debuted hydrogen, for literally years, every single time that they played Mite's song, it, it went into hydrogen. And then, you know, in '93, I think New Year's '92, they they went an old lane sign, and there's a couple times where. They made that bridge, Great Gig in the Sky, uh, Leprechaun, I think. And then you have, you know, you have shows like the Murat where we talked about where our previous guests on here started crying because Mites went into Life Um, And then they debuted Simple from the Mites Jam. But even all these shows, since 2294, which is a show I know both of you are familiar with, from uh, Ohio, it's one of my top five favorite sets of all time. They show off what they can do between Mites and Hydrogen and Wikipod. But still, if you look at it, all three of those are present in order. And if you look at WikiPod, you know without exception, it always would follow hydrogen from the first time it was played. They would, you know, like I said, do all these little improvisational larks. But until maybe '93, when they started deviating from it, so nowadays, I think it's an interesting shift where Mites and WikiPod in 4.0 they've kind of achieved partial independence. Uh, you know, maybe Wikipod has been annexed, <laughs> but, uh, you know, December 95, though, was the, the first of, of just several times even since where Mites and Wikipod were directly connected. There were these two back-to-back renditions in December, and this one was, was the first. Um, I can't believe it was only two times in a row they did that, because when I think of December 95, that's one of the characteristics I think about, and that and them not finishing Hood. Um, but there's also, there was no Hydrogen this entire month. Uh, and I think they only played it once that entire year, actually. They, they, they played it at Red Rods that summer, I think off the top of my head. I, I really do think that's the only time they played it. Um, and then, and, you know, in the 27 years since then, they've done Wikipod straight from Mites, what, like twice? They did it at the Gorge and they did it at the Barcelo, I think. But that was it. That was it.
1: Because we're in this configuration, uh, I've got RJ and Benji here, two fish experts. It's time for Tom's trivia question, uh, unrehearsed. And these guys have no idea what I'm about to ask. Um, I'm credited for a lot of fish songs. However, very few just instrumental ones. I'm going to ask Benji, what is the instrumental song? That I'm well,
2: my guess, and of course, I have no previous knowledge or information of this. It's speculation, Tom. But I'm gonna say that hydrogen, however, <laughs> I'm going to say, and and you're about to tell me, um, that I am hydrogen. Maybe you have a credit on it because there were initially lyrics for it, and then the lyrics were taken away. Is that is that true?
1: You guessed the song correctly, but no, this is something so <laughs> so it's i'm that so right to me it, it, you're you're very right about it the really song. Did. You're, you're right about the song and uh some things like what's the use had lyrics and then are i i, I got some credit for but um uh because uh it, you know trey wrote the song and then it continues as uh an in instrumental today uh without the lyrics so he's very nice to keep me credited for it. But um, I Am Hydrogen, I wrote on my piano with Mark Daubert on acoustic guitar. We loved it so much, we ran over to Trey's house and he added that amazing sort of uh, Dickie Betts, Dwayne Alminy uh, guitar. And back then his, um, uh, what is that type of, uh, his Mesa Boogie was a brand new amp. And uh, he. this is one of the first songs that he played with us with that. And we have a good version of that whole night. We, we recorded a, a whole lot of stuff that night, but um, earlier you mentioned Colonel Forbin um, and what was that narration about? Because it is significant to me.
2: Well, this is amazing. Um, it's one of my all time favorite Colonel For- uh, Forbin narrations. And, you know, Tom, it's amazing that after all these years, I get to talk about it with you yeah. because, you know, the, uh, well, first of all, there's the psychedelic tale that is perfectly in line with all the Forbin narrations. You know, the venue gives way to Gamehenge through, I guess, uh, mass hypnosis and suspended disbelief. Yeah. On this night, we learn that, and it's true that science, philosophy, and religion were all one thing. And then somehow from that, we get milk chocolate. You know, mmm, <laughs> chocolate, right? But, you know, but then, then this is where the most unexpected thing happens. Trey mentions the rhombus, and then he drops this very explicit clue that the rhombus might be found about 90 minutes down the road from the venue. <laughs> I don't think you said that at the time, but it's about 90 minutes down the road in Kenya, Prussia. I've done that drive many times. <laughs> so for those who don't know, by the way, in Kenya, Prussia, Pennsylvania, there's a giant mall complex. And it's kind of what you know, Kenya, Prussia is known for. And Trey doesn't go this far in the narration, but inside the mall... There used to be a Wilson's leather store. And so I figured this out after this night I, by driving there. I figured out that if you ask the store manager for their business card, it will say Wilson's, King of Prussia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so uh, thanks to Trey for giving this narration because, you know, afterwards I, I think, you know, we investigated. And I think that was the point. It was kind of like to throw us off the scent. Because maybe uh, some fish fans are trying to find the rhombus. And Tom, in, in a second, you might want to come in and, and, and say whether or not, you know, because you would know this. But you took me years later to the rhombus. You know, I still have a picture of it. I'll post it this week to prove it. <laughs> and it's not even in the same state as King of Prussia.
1: And, but, and I, uh, just, I, I just sent RJ the same picture of my taking him. Yeah. First yeah. Time. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, Taking both so of you. Been
2: to the rhombus. It's yeah. not in Kenya, Prussia. It's, it's right? not. And, <laughs> but, uh, and, and
1: back then, just, uh, uh, just to interrupt you, I'll just interject and then you can continue. Um, sorry, Benji, the, um, the 95, the, uh, you know, being able to find things on the internet wasn't still as sophisticated as it is today where you can send someone, you know, drop a pin and, and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Um, and, back then a whole lot of the fish audience did not know where the rhombus was. And I think before this show, I even said to Trey, uh, you know, it's a good time to maybe, you know, keep throwing people off the scent. <laughs> that's,
2: exactly, uh, that's, that's exactly right. I, I think a, a lot of, uh, I think what it accomplished was it got a lot of fish fans to so you patronize the shopping mall. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, so I mean, Brenji, you you covered the whole set. I just want to say that the mics has this insane sort of multifaceted jam segment. I mean, you know, nineteen minutes or so of just pure fun, um, and then the the Weekepog when they go into Weekepog and in trays, they're just screaming the chorus. It's like it's clear how much fun they're having, and um, that's just it's such a great segment to to revisit. And I do I think the you know, the Trey doing the Homer Simpson chocolate thing several times, it really captures the mid-90s so well. It's just such a moment in time when that was like, that was pop culture at the time, you know? It's pretty wild. Um, one thing I want to ask you guys, we haven't talked about this yet. Every show we've talked about this season has been a a show that is legendary. And I'm just, I think we like shows like this and every show we've talked about really gets mythologized in a way and and especially in like the pre-internet era. And I'm thinking about it now because some of the bands <clears> that <throat> are playing shows now like when Fish goes on tour or, or following Goose's tour, there's so many shows happening and we can listen to them right away and it's hard for any show really to like take hold because the next day there's more stuff to listen to and I'm I'm just like a show like this really gets this place in in history and obviously it's a great show but Benji is like a writer and a, and a journalist. Like, what do you think about that? Because I feel like we, we put these shows on, on pedestals and then, and now it's like hard to do that because we have so much content coming at us at all times. It's hard to step back and say like, this particular show was great. And I, I wonder if we, will we do that in the future for 2021 or 2022 shows or is that era over?
2: it's tough to say, but I think a part of what you're talking about is that you had to work to get the shows. And so you would see or hear, Hey, Trey talked about, you know, the rhombus being in Kenya pressure last night. Oh, I got to hear that, you know, or for us at the show, we wanted to, you know, get the tapes immediately. And, and maybe I should just give a shout out to the, the tapers, you know, for, for uh, making sure that we all got to, you know, uh, very selfless, selflessly making sure that we all got to hear it. And, got to be a part of the secret handshake. So I think when you work hard for a show to get it, then, uh, you know, the other thing too is now I listen, these 4.0 shows, there are so many of them that were great that I listened to once. And I, and I remember it later as being great, but, you know, like you said, there's just, we couldn't listen to every note of every tour. And since the beginning of 3.0, we've had the luxury of, I don't think, I haven't missed a note of Fish since they came back. You know, whereas at the time in 1.0, I had my you know my tape my ever growing tape collection. Each one though, it'd be one you know one or two a week, maybe. I don't know.
0: Yeah, totally, Tom. What do you have any thoughts on that? I have no thoughts on that. Okay, Um, okay. Last question, Benji. So, wait, I've talked a little bit about Fish's sound, like filling these arenas in a way, and I, I think we've discussed here about how Halloween can kind of like pushed the band's focus in one way or another. And and about a month or month and a half before this, they covered Quadrophenia by The Who. Um, can you hear that in this Hershey show a month later?
2: You know, I, I don't know. Um, not overtly, other than the fact that they were becoming masters of these old hockey arenas where the reverb literally bounces off the back walls now, Hershey Park Arena, as I mentioned, it's an old, dirty, smelly, cavernous hockey hall. It holds 8,000 people, so it's a smaller arena. It was built in the early part of last century. And what that means, there's, it's significant. It means that it predates rock and roll, period. And so it literally was not built with rock concerts in mind. It was built for hockey and other things, but because of that, there's an echo that was problematic for a lot of bands there. I remember so many shows where if you're not in the right area, you hear that echo and it, you know, when a, when somebody talks on stage, it's just gar- a garble. But I remember, you know, Paul Langredock uh, told me once that in that particular room, there's a four second audible reverb, you know, of, of decay, which is just insane. And I don't know how he overcame it or how the band overcame it because it Fish sounded better than any. I've seen, like I said, dozens of concerts there, and non, Fish sounded the best sonically. And so I think, you know, maybe RJ, maybe Quadrophenia and learning, you know, this stuff by The Who, maybe it helped in a way because by learning arena rock, the band kind of learned how to rock arenas
1: as far as decay goes, just decay alone, the 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 echoing that's getting uh, less quiet, that's not specifically an echo, the people filling it up, like that would be in an empty room that Paul's talking about, which is still four seconds is ridiculous. It should not happen acoustically. But once the people get in there, I'm sure that's less, but the echo, you're right. That's something completely different. And I didn't hear it that night. I guess uh, that I didn't, re- you know, I don't remember hearing it.
2: The, I think maybe Trey has talked about how you learn how to play to that. So yeah. just like a delay loopers or, or, you know, a pedal, you kind of learn. And, and that's what I mean when I, when I say, you know, RJ back to your question about Halloween, you know, it was, I think it, it was fortuitous maybe, but, but the band learning how to play uh, arena rock, like Quaterfini is such an arena rock album. And before here, '93, the band has a little bit more of a jazzy the- theatrical sound, you know. And by '95, they sound like an arena rock. Now, yeah. when you hear them in MSG, they are the quintessential MSG band, but they're arena rock, you know.
1: That's yeah. a great answer. That's a that's that's actually a good point. Never thought of it that way. Because some Halloweens you immediately hear the influence on the band uh, musically, not this one so much automatically. I mean, they did yeah. cover they did cover several of those songs later, of course. But, uh, I think that's it for us today. RJ, anything else for our, our esteemed guest? I
0: don't think so. I guess Benji, is there, is there one lasting moment of this this show that you will always go back to?
2: Well, you know, I will say that, uh, it's worth mentioning as Tom did earlier, uh, when, you know, when Fishman came out, uh, and he had the cape with, with all these flashlights in it. You know, I, I think the thing that's worth mentioning is that Fishman has uh, certain tours where he plays certain vacuum songs, right? Um, that We call them Henrietta's, I guess. And it's this thing. And he goes through periods of them. So Suspicious Minds, when you see that on a set list... You know immediately that it's Fall '95, right? He played it exclusively. I mean, maybe he lost the cape and lost the <laughs> uh, uh, on the tour bus or something. No, granted, he did bring it back for this infamous Las Vegas show. Uh, it was like a year to the week actually in December of 1996 at the Aladdin, uh, and I think maybe one other show somewhere. But other than that, it's exclusively a Fall '95 show, which is what I'm saying is bring it back. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's a good way for us to end. Uh, Thank you, Benji. Thank you, RJ. It's great to have the whole team on today. And uh, we should mention the other folks that actually help us behind the scenes. We have um, fellow executive producer Matt Dwyer, but we also have Eric who makes these videos look amazing. And we have Nick, our social media lead, and who's the public voice of Osiris. And uh, also thanks to Christina for helping make sure things run smoothly. And uh, last but not least, Brian Brinkman, who helped bring this season to life. We'll be talking to you soon, Brian. And thank you to everyone out there in podcast land for joining us, whether you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on your stereo. Remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch, and we'll see you in 15 minutes or a couple days. If you feel like listening to 121495 from Binghamton, Please do. And until then, don't do anything we would not. Osiris. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.